This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Okay, so welcome to the third episode of Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water in context. I'm very excited for today's podcast. We have two real smart experts here in the room with us to talk about um, the new cannabis section of the bar here in Utah and kind of movements here in Utah on the cannabis front. And then also talk about how water fits into that. So I have Hannah Follender from Workman Neidegger and uh, John Clyde from here in our own office at Clyde Snow and Sessions. And I'm hoping today is just kind of a free-ranging conversation about, um, you know, kind of what the movements here in the state are on cannabis, and then some considerations that water users and the water community kind of might want to think about um, in terms of taking this home to their own um, water uses and practices. With that, I was hoping that Hannah could give us a little introduction about herself and then maybe start us off a little bit with talking about what the current status of the law is here in Utah regarding cannabis and then we maybe move into a little bit of um, discussion about the new bar section. Great. Um, hi, I am Hannah Follender. I am a patent and trademark attorney here with Workman Neidegger in Salt Lake. And my practice is mainly in the preparation of patent and trademark applications and trademark enforcement. And I do have quite a few cannabis clients, both in the hemp space and the marijuana space right now who are pursuing IP strategies. So the cannabis law section, brand new, and it was really exciting. We had our Mm -hmm. first COE last week. And the impetus to form that was really, I went to the ABA, the ABA had their first cannabis focused conference back in September. And I realized that there were so many different discussions going on around cannabis. And I wanted to bring that conversation back to Utah. Right. And what kind of turnout did you have? You had a pretty good turnout, right? Yeah, we had almost 60 attorneys show up. That's a really good turnout for our bar event. Yeah. <laughs> Very exciting. We offered snacks. Somebody had actually emailed the bar before um, we hosted the event to say that they were upset with the wording of our event invitation because we said hors d'oeuvres instead of saying munchies. So <laughs> it was like, funny. all right, bring on, cue, cue all the jokes, but cue all the jokes. everyone's exactly. interested. So Yeah, engagement. For sure. So now that we know that there's a need for legal services, um, would you just kind of give us a little bit of background as kind of like what the federal status is on marijuana now and how that kind of fits in with like states exploring and expanded use and um, regulation of of hemp or marijuana in those states? Right. So right now, um, cannabis, as far as marijuana is concerned, um, is illegal at the federal level. Cannabis in relation to hemp, though, is legal um, due to the Farm Bill of 2018, which officially legalized hemp. Um, But right now, the USDA, I think they might have either just released guidelines or they are actually actively working towards creating guidelines. 
for state production production of hemp. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. Uh, cannabis is not. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as states are concerned, states have one at a time either legalized cannabis as a medical use or as adult recreational use, with Colorado being the first recreational state in 2014. And so can you give us a little bit of a distinction between when, when people say cannabis versus marijuana versus hemp? Like, what are we really talking about? Right. So cannabis is, uh, that's the actual scientific name for the plant. Um, there's cannabis sativa, which is the hemp plant, and then cannabis sativa L, which is the plant that we associate with the psychoactive effects, like getting stoned. Um, we call it marijuana. Uh, the term marijuana is actually kind of a loaded term when it comes to cannabis, and right now the community is trying to change that terminology and focus more on just calling it its, as its scientific name, cannabis. Cannabis L? Just cannabis. <laughs> it's just cannabis? Okay. <laughs> sort of depending on who you're talking to in the context, you kind of figure out what you're talking about. Yeah, fascinating. It's a good sign when there's language change. And so then how did cannabis, the parent term, and then marijuana, you know, the more illicit drug term, really become to be regulated by the federal government? Like, you know, it's been, you know, and this is an area that's relatively new to me, but my understanding is that, you know, there are the wives' tales of George Washington growing hemp, and it's been part of our history for quite some time. Um, How did we get to the point today where it is a controlled substance? Right, so hemp, um, cannabis in general, came from Asia, at least 12,000 years ago, we're not exactly sure when, but it has been used over time in many different cultures as a medication. Um, It was actually very popular as a topical use during childbirth. And it was also widely prescribed by physicians in the United States up until the early 1900s. And the second half of the 19th century was when organic chemistry came about. And uh, people started to realize that they could isolate and they did this with opium, uh, with coca, with willow bark, which um, from that they derived salicin, which is mm-hmm. the base for aspirin. And they tried and tried and tried with cannabis and they could never figure out how to actually isolate any compounds from cannabis. Um, and if you can't isolate a compound, then you have a really hard time patenting it. Mm-hmm. So because of that, because they couldn't have um, a, mon- a monopoly on the market, pharmaceutical companies actually lobbied against having cannabis as a legal substance and lobbied for prohibition. So there's the pharmaceutical side, um, but then also there's the social side of it. And in the 1930s, Harry Amsinger, he oversaw drug enforcement in the United States. The U.S. drugs are. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he was a very, uh, he was notoriously xenophobic and racist individual (laughs) with some very interesting quotes he said that cannabis or marijuana which is how he referred to it um, basically he used the term that um, Mexican immigrants used to call the plant and that way he said that um, it was these immigrants and he used the term Negro he said that these are the people who would typically use marijuana and that was a reason for um, controlling it and making it illegal so we kind of got these convergence of kind of some xenophobic, because the 1930s too is, you know, an era that's um, gi- you know, deep Jim Crow, and mm-hmm. so kind of what you're seeing our policies reflect that as well. Um, and then you have the convergence of kind of xenophobic policies and then um, scientific advancements to really kind of get to where we are today as, as a controlled substance. 
Yeah. That's interesting. And in 1936, that's when Reefer Madness came out. And mm. a lot of our policy that we still have today is all based on Reefer Madness. Okay. So now that we're kind of like opening up our policies, you know, what does, you know, this is a new thing for Utah. You know, as you mentioned, you know, other Western states and, and areas have kind of been exploring uh, an expanded use of, of cannabis in their state. What is the status in Utah right now? Like, what are we allowing? What, what is what is happening? Just if you give us like a brief little overview, that'd be very helpful. Sure. So hemp is legal based on the Farm Bill 2018. Um, that's a federal bill applies across the country. So hemp is grown in Utah, can be grown in Utah, and people are very excited about growing hemp here in Utah. Have we, do you know of anybody who's like switched to hemp products in the last two years? Or I guess we only have like one growing season between, probably. Um, right, and we've had, so there was the Farm Bill of 2014, which did allow some hemp grows. Mm -hmm. So there might have been some that were already pre-existing in Utah. But I'm sure since the Farm Bill of 2018 officially legalized hemp, um, that there are other grows that I'm sure have popped up since then because, I mean, now you can't drive down the street and not see CBD <laughs> sold here. Yes, on our big billboards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then on the cannabis side or medical marijuana, I'll use that term because that is actually a policy term. Um, so medical marijuana is legal here in Utah. And Utah is set to start dispensing March 1st. So that's coming up next week. So right now the state will open with one pharmacy they prefer the language pharmacy to dispensary. It's very confusing, mm -hmm. um, but we just have to call them pharmacies. And by July, on or after July 1st of 2020, we're supposed to have 16 pharmacies in operation. Wow, okay. That's a quite an expansion in a short period of time. It is, but we will see. I mean, they've provided for market analysis if we don't have enough to serve the population who needs prescriptions. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think we'll probably exceed that number pretty quickly. Okay, awesome. So before we kind of turn to the water side on that, just real quickly, would you kind of tell us from a patent attorney side, like what you do and how that's related to the cannabis industry? Sure, so cannabis industry, it's still, it's a new industry. Um, there are lots of new companies, startups, and generally speaking, a business, 70 to 80% of the value of a company is their IP. So that's patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets. And in the cannabis space, you have the patent side, which can include uh, the plant itself, to any compounds derived from the plant, to your latest, greatest smoking device <laughs> or way of, favorite way of consumption. And then there's the trademark side, which is your branding. And on the patent side, there's no federal um, prohibition on filing for and receiving a patent for cannabis. Uh, you can, if you have a great way to make cocaine, you could patent that too. Oh. Couldn't sell it, but <laughs> you could patent it. Uh, so the real interesting issues have been on the trademark side, because trademark is based in interstate commerce, and you obviously you can't sell cannabis between states. Mm -hmm. So there have been ways to work around it, and a lot of my job has been jumping through hoops for clients. Um, it's been really interesting. Frustrating, but interesting and exciting when you get stuff through. Uh, but hopefully, what we're waiting on right now is some directive from the FDA, which will allow for the interstate um, sale of CBD. Okay. And so right now, it's all just in intrastate. Mm -hmm. And so all the CBD science you see are going to be CBD that's essentially produced and then marketed and sold inside Utah. Right. So, and I should clarify this. So CBD is the part of the plant that's the non-psychoactive part. And that's 
CBD, would you spell that out? Uh, cannabidiol. Okay. Oil, right? Or, or no, CBD. It's just cannabidiol. Cannabidiol. So CBD is the short form okay. of cannabidiol. Um, so yeah, non-psychoactive component of the cannabis plant and used as an analgesic, um, general pain reliever. And it's actually used in a drug called Epidiolex, and it's a seizure medication. And since that drug is under control of the FDA, that means the FDA can control CBD. Oh, interesting. So while CBD is no longer a controlled substance, so you can trademark it for that reason, it's still a contentious issue with the FDA just for sale of some sort of drug. So we'll see how that comes down in the next couple of months, hopefully. <laughs> Great. Well, that's a great segue into introducing one of my favorite colleagues, John Clyde. And so really kind of one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this podcast is, you know, a lot of what our firm represents are kind of, you know, large water suppliers, a lot of which you have some kind of federal nexus. And so it's an area that I don't know a lot about. And so I wanted to have John on to kind of talk about, like, if this becomes a more growing industry in the state, how does that really affect, like, water supply and, water infrastructure for providing water for this kind of niche agricultural product knowing that it's a little bit of a on the edges <laughs> so that John if you want to you know give a brief introduction to yourself and kind of um, maybe talk about what your thoughts on this matter are uh, sounds good thanks for letting me come on to the podcast John Clyde third generation water rights lawyer here uh, my grandfather actually started Clyde Snow back in the 60s under a different name at that point but uh of a fun family business that I've been able to uh, join into and continue on. So and now fun. here in Utah with us more yep. regularly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Back from Oregon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, you know, cannabis is farming. You know, people are uh, cultivating it. It's basically, you know, it's farming. Um, when you're out there and it requires water and it requires sunlight, all those different things. Um, so to that extent, cannabis requires water right permits, um, water rights, you have to acquire them with the property or separately from the property to in order to grow them. You know, obviously there's differences, you know, if you're in a city, you can get municipal. Uh, if you're doing like an indoor hydroponic grow, you could probably get some municipal water that way. And I guess that's a good question for Hannah. Do you know if there's a big difference between like outdoor cultivation versus indoor hydroponic facilities? Like is that, do you know about how, what kind of Utah is experimenting with? So I know how the law stands right now um, and what's what they're working on in this legislative session. So there was a provision in the original bill um, for medical cannabis that required that you had to choose between an outdoor grow and an indoor grow. Mm -hmm. um, and they removed that uh, restriction. And what they're working on now is being able to allow stacking for indoor growing just to maximize the amount of space um, because I think it's up to Grow it tall. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's helpful for a lot the water discussion is kind of like where these grows are really going to occur. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's marijuana has been, or cannabis has been legalized. Uh, you know, a lot of people that were illegally growing this before, typically in the Pacific Northwest, um, are starting to come out of the shadows and kind of comply with the systems and the water rights. And, uh, you know, it's not primarily a Utah issue, and I'm not sure that anyone's really had a, a large cannabis growing drug busting Utah but uh, at least I'm not aware of any 
So anyway, we're starting to get more people into the system and we're starting to get more people wondering about how do I get water for this? What do what steps do I need to go through? Um, and primarily the issue is what obstacles there are. And, um, and how much water do you, does a cannabis grow take? Do you have an idea about the quantities you're talking about? Growers up in Oregon have been averaging about 3,000 gallons per day for their grow, um, which is about half as much as alfalfa, or one and a half acre feet per acre. So potentially less water consumptive crop than, than we grow here in Utah, which would help us you know, kind of maybe spread our water resources then if farmers are looking to change to a more nutrient you know, crop. Exactly. My understanding is that they don't plant them very close together either. Um, so when they're actually reaching maturity, they're quite a ways away. And so it's, it's not a very dense crop either mm-hmm. onto the ground. So, you know, potential there. Um, it's definitely an emerging market. We've all seen that. And there's a lot of market for these new CBD products and medical marijuana as well. We've uh, helped w- at least one entity acquire a cultivation license. State procurement process to get that license, and it was quite an interesting process for sure. So. But the thing I really wanted to talk about, and the reason why we're kind of here, is uh, how the state legalized medical marijuana interacts with federal project facilities. Um, and we'll discuss that a little bit, I think, as we get into this. But uh, essentially, the problem is cannabis is a Schedule One drug. Maybe Hannah, you can explain that a little bit better, what a Schedule One drug is. So, Schedule One drugs are drugs that are controlled by the Controlled Substance, Substance Act. Uh, they are illegal and cannot be sold in interstate commerce, um, cannot be produced anywhere, and they are just across the board not allowed. <laughs> so what states are doing right now by legalizing within their own states, um, it does not prevent the government from coming in if they want to. The federal government. The federal government. Um, But they've stood down in the last few years and sort of let states do their own thing. Laboratories of democracy. (laughs) Just a question about that. Um, So it's still illegal, but they've just chosen not to enforce it or not to pursue it. Is that basically what's happening? Yeah, so that's what's happening. And what used to happen in Colorado um, right around 2014 when they had just legalized um, the DEA would come in and raid uh, legal grows that were state legal, but obviously not federally legal, mm-hmm. and disrupt a whole business. So what they've done since then is they've stopped, the government has stopped doing that. Um, and I believe there is a protection in place where they're actually, it's just, it's not a focus of enforcement right now. Not a priority. And, right, and as they see more and more states come online, whether it's medical cannabis or recreational use, um, we're starting to see the tides change pretty quick and it's less of a priority than say cocaine or heroin or other hard drugs. I think what you were talking about was the Cole Memorandum. Um, That came out in 2014, I believe. And the point of that was, I think he was Deputy Attorney General James Cole, Mm -hmm. uh, issued this memorandum out to US state attorneys. Uh, And the point of it was, look, we realize states are legalizing marijuana for either recreational or medical purposes. Um, And then they kind of went, and he's like, here's how we want you to handle it. And he went through eight different priorities um, that the feds looked for with drugs. It was, I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but it was like prohibiting them getting to minors, public health and safety, uh, gun violence, crime, and some other stuff like that. 
basically told the state attorneys, like, use your discretion, but it's not the best use of federal resources to go after these legal entities that are complying with these state regulatory systems that are robust, have enforcement practices, and um, generally, if somebody's in compliance with that, it's not a great use of our resources to go after them. And then, uh, interestingly, uh, Jeff Sessions, as the Trump administration came in, he issued another memorandum and basically rescinded that. The anti-coal memo. The anti-coal <laughs> memo. Um, and he said, you know, the federal priorities are the federal priorities. We don't need this. We don't need something specific about marijuana or cannabis. So he rescinded that. Um, practically, from what I've seen, that has had no real impact, as far as I can tell. Um, people have continued to, you know, the U.S. attorneys have continued to investigate and prosecute um, about the same. Um, and drug cases are up, but marijuana cases are down, is my understanding. So. Hmm. Makes sense. I mean, these are huge economies. I mean, look at Colorado. It's a lot of money brought in, brought into their coffers. Yeah. Well, even so, I'm going to say this wrong because I'm from New Jersey. I say Nevada, but everybody here says Nevada. Um, but so Nevada actually made $640 million in revenue last year from uh, recreational marijuana sales. And then the state of Illinois, which just uh, started dispensing recreationally January 1st of this year, they made $10 million in tax revenue in one month. Okay. So well, we do have robust tax <laughs> discussions here in the state of Utah. Maybe we should yes. open those up a little bit about income streams. <laughs> yeah, it's big business. And yeah. my understanding is that uh, a lot of the drug cartels, marijuana makes up the bulk of their uh, finances. Hmm. So that's why it's a a big priority federally to look at these huge operations. I actually have heard that the state legalizing it or decriminalizing it has really made a huge impact on the cartel's business. Kind of black market. Yeah, now that there's so a, a legal market for it, yeah. kind of diminish the demand for black market. Yeah. yeah, I think legalizing and then actually meeting the demand mm -hmm. with the supply is what will actually take care of the drug cartels. Interesting. Because in Canada, I know... So they were, the first, they were the second country to legalize. Uruguay was actually the first. And they were having a problem meeting the demand in Canada. And the prices were so high and the demand, or the supply just wasn't there to meet the demand that people still are going towards the black market to buy mm -hmm. their cannabis. So they're working on fixing that problem. And I think Some that's market something. Market inaccuracies. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that we should be looking at as we start to shape our own cannabis economy, economy here in Utah. Or just and in the U.S. in general. Hmm. Well, that brings us back to the good discussion about kind of like of that economy. Water is a key component of that mm -hmm. because, like, I think John very aptly stated that you know cannabis is farming, and so like one thing we are really good at here in the state is pretty robust agriculture. And so you know, John, can you just kind of tell us a little bit for those who are kind of newer to this this topic? just generally how farms get water from federal projects and how like the federal project nexus for agriculture in general. Yeah, so primarily the West was developed um, with the help of the federal government. Water out here, as most of us know, is not abundant and it's usually not where people need it and there's not a lot of storage. Uh, you know, we, here in Utah, we primarily rely on snowpack and the runoff to fill our reservoirs every year. But those reservoirs, which catch that runoff and make it usable throughout the year, uh, were primarily built 
by the Bureau of Reclamation throughout the West. In fact, Bureau of Reclamation is still the largest water distributor in the country. Um, almost every project, every big project in the West was funded by the Bureau of Reclamation. And how many projects do we have here in Utah, you know, federal projects? I don't. There's a couple that I can think of off the top mm -hmm. of my head, um, which is the Weber Basin Project and then also the Central Utah Project. We got Provo River Project. Oh, the, really, the largest water providers here in the state are, are kind of the backbone as a federal project. Yeah. Um, so we can talk about the Central Utah Project because that's one we're quite familiar with. But mm -hmm. uh, that is a process whereby they bring, I think, about 200,000 acre feet annually from out by uh, the Colorado River Basin, out by Duchesne, and it goes down into Starvation Reservoir, Strawberry Reservoir, then it's piped over to Jordanelle, and from Jordanelle it then runs down to the Wasatch Front um, in the mouth of Provo Canyon where it's distrib uh, distributed from there throughout uh, Utah Valley and Salt Lake Valley. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where a very large bulk of the municipal water for uh, the Wasatch Front comes from. So these projects were all authorized under the Reclamation Act of 1902. Um, and the reason that's important is that said, you can build these projects, but you have to comply with state water law. Um, so Reclamation builds the project, they acquire the water rights, they acquire the additional storage, um, and just like any other entity, they own the water right, um, typically until a title transfer has occurred which happens after the project's been paid back. Um, and under the Trump administration, there's been a pretty big push to try and transfer as much title as they can. And so can you walk us through that repayment for a second, though? Like, how are they actually repay? How are the federal investment of funds in these projects paid back um, to the federal government? So as the project is developed, people will subscribe or purchase uh, petition to purchase water, um, and they will do that generally at a wholesale rate with a price per acre foot and they'll acquire the storage and um, annually typically with I think about a three percent interest they'll have to make payments to the federal government um, usually over a 40 50 year period sometimes they get refinanced if interest rates go up you have to make repairs stuff like that it kind of keeps the ball rolling but uh, you know through bonding and or rate structure is how they generate the money to pay things back. Yeah, so b the basic instrument is basically a water contract that has mm -hmm. various funding mechanisms to kind of buy the water. Yep, that's correct. So how this connects with cannabis, and uh, you're probably all wondering, or maybe you are, maybe you're not, but uh, <laughs> there's a prohibition on use of federal funds for production of what is essentially a controlled substance um, under federal law. So you can't spend money towards growing marijuana. And that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and that is extended to federal facilities. You can't use a federal facility to grow marijuana. You can't, in this case, you can't take water from a federal project that was acquired by a federal project. If it was owned and if the water is owned by the federal government, the Bureau of Reclamation, you cannot use that to grow marijuana. Likewise, if you have a Warren Act contract, and a Warren Act contract is a kind of bizarre contract that allows individual water users, um, it could be a city, it could be an individual, to borrow or buy excess capacity in a reclamation project and use those facilities to transport their own water. 
to basically storing their privately held water rights in a federal facility. Yep, or running it through a pipeline or a canal, um, anything like that that was built by recognition. So even though those are independently owned water rights, not owned by the federal government, because they're in the federal project, it creates a federal nexus. Yep, correct? because you're using the federal facilities. So anything that runs through the mm -hmm. federal facilities to deliver water to you, um, or if it's federal water alone. Um, there's a 2014 temporary policy memorandum. Um, I'm not sure if this has been updated, but I think it's supposed to expire in May of this year. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But uh, it prohibits Bureau of Reclamation water from being used for cannabis growth. Um, and reclamation employees, if they come across that, they're, ob or they're required to report it to the DOJ. And, uh, but it does not provide a enforcement mechanism, which is interesting. So, so maybe that'd fall under the coal memo. Yeah, I mean, or the anti-coal memo, not under, right. not follow up on it. <laughs> well, I have a, I have a question. So, if there's some sort of intermediary between where the water is coming from, what breaks up that connection in federal water? Um, that's a very good question, um, and one that I don't really think has a correct answer. We sometimes, when we're talking about water rights, refer to red water and blue water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, red water goes through this pipe, blue water goes through this pipe, um, but you can't really tell which. You know, when it commingles, you can't tell which one's which. Um, and so I'm not sure where that nexus gets separated um, and how much distance between the federal project needs to um, occur before you've separated it from federal water. And a good example of that is down in Utah County, um, the Central Utah Project wholesales water to all of the cities, um, Saratoga Springs, Provo, Orem, you name it, everywhere down there. Um, and certainly once it gets into the municipal systems, it's probably no longer federal water, but that's where it originated. And so that's a question that uh, I think needs some answering as to how that gets separated out. And I'm not really quite sure where we'll fall on that. Um, I think because it doesn't really impact those federal priorities um, in the coal memo, which still apply with the Sessions memo, um, it's probably not that big of a deal. I suspect there won't be many enforcement actions over this sort of stuff um, from a federal standpoint. Um, you know, we still advised our clients, hey, if you're getting federal water, don't, don't grow cannabis just because we don't want to give you that. Um, the flip side, though, is you mentioned, Hannah, that the Farm Bill in 2018 legalized hemp growth. Um, so that's essentially a cannabis plant with low THC levels, is that mm -hmm. correct? Right, so that's, hemp is a cannabis plant with THC that's less than 0.03% uh, by dry weight. Is that a federal standard or is that a state standard? That's a federal standard. Um, it's a hotly debated standard <laughs> because there's really no clear understanding. There's not enough science out there right now. That's the main problem with cannabis in general because as far as the water side, we don't really know exactly how much water we need in all these different regions to grow cannabis. And then we also don't know the extent of the effects on medical patients because we don't have enough research yet. So it, everything related to cannabis, the primary issue is the lack of research. Yeah, and my understanding is that that ties back to um, using federal funds mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. study a controlled substance. Um, there's been very limited research. Right. At least federally funded is my, my 
Actually, what Utah did in its amendments to HB 3001, which is the Utah Cannabis Medical Cannabis Act, um, they provided for research to be done at the universities here in Utah to study medical cannabis. Based on state funding? Right, because they do want more information. They want to know how these patients are affected by use and what guidelines they should create for qualified medical providers who are prescribing can uh, cannabis to patients. Seems like Utah State would be a great place to do that. Like it's you already just all uh, farms. Like yeah, <laughs> well, and it's like a land grant state or school mm -hmm. with you know already with pretty robust agricultural programs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was interesting when I was doing my research. I actually came across a letter from somebody at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to uh, Governor Herbert, and it basically said, "Yeah, if you guys spend money studying um, cannabis, or if you run kind of these state programs, which they." Went up, ended up eventually going away from. Uh, the question is, will that affect our federal funding for these? And uh, mm -hmm. Health and Human Services basically said no, but then included all this caveat language that said, you know, federal funds can't go to study of drugs, they can't go to this. Um, so it was kind of interesting to see how they tried to walk that line a little bit. But the stand down gray area? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the main one there is privatizing because that took the state out of the position of being the dispenser of an illegal substance and also taking money for an illegal substance. Hmm. So they're just a few levels removed from that. They're still regulating it, but they don't actually do any plant touching or selling. And in here in Utah, it's going to be a pharmacy, right? Not a yes, dispensary? Correct. Yeah. We like the word pharmacy in Utah. We're very medical-oriented, mm -hmm. which, I mean, they're dispensaries. Let's be clear. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not where you're going to go get your other mm -hmm. prescriptions yeah yeah well hopefully you won't need them if it's effective for you so right. yeah um so yeah kind of the last thing i wanted to talk about is as we said um these individuals get their uh, bureau of reclamation water primarily subject to water contracts um those always include you can't do anything illegal with the water um stuff like that and so while we talked about federal enforcement um, with, from DOJ and this and that, um, there is the potential that um, growing cannabis violates that contract and therefore they can stop or cease water deliveries to you pursuant to the contract. Um, so it's important to look at your subscriber contract or your water sales contract, see what you obligated yourself to and um, if there's ways around it. Um, we don't certainly don't advocate breaking the law, but be aware of what you're doing. <laughs> so when you were applying for a cultivation license for one of your clients, did you have to address the water issues or talk about how much water you might need or how much, yeah, exactly what that involves? Um, for this, for the person that we helped out, we actually didn't. They, uh, it was an existing farm, okay. and so they had their existing water rights. They didn't need to change the type of use. They didn't need to do anything along that. It's, uh, they were down in south, southern Utah quite a ways, and so um, pretty isolated uh, range, but they had everything they needed from the get-go. Um, but if you were looking to start this up, um, you would find some suitable property, and then what we would typically do is a due diligence on the water rights. You'd call us up, we would examine the property, see what water it had with it, if that water was a pertinent, which means kind of attached to the land. I'm not sure if we've discussed that yet in our podcast. 
so we'd see if it was attached to the land, if not, where it came from, how to acquire water, um, and we kind of just look at the market that way and start to bring it there. Um, we'd need to file a, typically a change application if it was primarily stock right or um, different place of use, different point of diversion to bring it to the, the farm where it was going to be used. So. And I think the nature of use would be irrigation. And so this, from my perspective, the state engineer doesn't ask you what you do with your irrigation. They just give you a standard uh, acre-foot duty based on alfalfa. So depending on where you are in the state will depend on how much water you get. Um, you know, some areas, areas of the state are a four-acre-foot duty. Some areas of the state are five-acre-foot duty. And so with a 1.5-acre-foot duty required to grow cannabis, I mean, it, it seems like a, it might be something that would be a good water-savvy crop opposed to alfalfa for people to explore. Yeah. I do think they would probably apply the standardized alfalfa duty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, probably would just have excess water. And for those of you at home, uh, an acre foot is just what it sounds like. It's enough water to cover an acre of ground with one foot of water. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty typical water wonk measurement. So. Yeah. And, one, and just so you know, Hannah, one, one of the big conversations in the state right now is about this duty value and, like, how with, you know, growing populations and changing demand, demand patterns, how are we going to provide water for future growth? And a lot of it is talking about do we adjust this kind of standard acre-foot duty to really accommodate, you know, per-crop values or do we do it so that if you conserve water, you can market that in a separate, in, in a separate transaction? And so those are kind of some of the hot-button hot button topics right now in the state is, like, how do we kind of better look at this consumptive value of the crops and how much water they actually use. And so to me, it seems like a really interesting way to grow and potentially has some opportunities for farmers in the future to be a little more water savvy or potentially market additional water that they save. Yeah. So this is where I actually, um, because you mentioned Oregon and taking numbers from Oregon and their climate, um, I think that's interesting. They generally have a lot more water, at least in certain parts of the state. So, um, I've had I've heard mixed things as far as how much water it takes to grow a hemp crop or a marijuana crop, and some say you can't in an arid place like in Utah where we're much drier climate, relatively speaking, that you do need actually a lot more water at least in the first six weeks of growing, because if you don't have enough water, then you're going to end up with a plant that has a very low yield. So, I think this is, comes back to the we don't have enough research yet mm-hmm. question. Because there is this debate whether it's a more, it is being marketed as like a renewable resource. We have this like hemp fiber um, and all these products like plastic alternatives made from hemp. Um, but I think the water um, levels that it needs to grow are still being learned. The water footprint we're still understanding. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing for us to start looking into. I mean, the state's going to change in a, in a variety of different ways. And yeah. I think that this, these are the kind of discussions that really need to be happening is like really getting some raw data about water use crops and like looking at kind of new fits for the state as we kind of move into the next century. Yeah. Well, I think that might be a good way to cut us off today. But that was a great conversation. And I so yeah. appreciate both of you coming and your time. And then why don't you just quickly again, Hannah, for our readers, just say your name again and where you work. So in case anybody wants to get in contact with you, they can do that. Sure. I, my name is Hannah Follender, and I am at Workman Neidegger. We are a boutique IT firm located in Salt Lake City. Okay. John Clyde? Uh, John Clyde here at Clyde Snow and Sessions. Um, we do a lot of different stuff, but we... <laughs> we have a fair amount of us here just primarily doing water rights. Yeah, water, and we do have a growing cannabis section as well in our we firm. Do, yes, this is true. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Great. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Thank you for listening.